This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. If you will, open your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. If you've got uh, one of the black ones behind the seat back in front of you there in the pew, it will be on page 136. This morning we'll begin our study in Deuteronomy, and though this will take much time, we will eventually finish it. Uh, Just like I started Ephesians a few years ago, uh, we'll work our way through. However, unlike Ephesians, we probably will take much wider strides, uh, more like what what Mark has done in Genesis and uh, and Exodus to get through. Just to give you some kind of historical background or kind of overall information about the book of Deuteronomy, this is the fifth and final book in the Pentateuch, or what's referred to as the Torah, or the teaching of the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy summarizes and brings together the first four books, and it's going to set the standard going forward and provide the rubric by which everything afterwards in the Old Testament will be evaluated against or judged by. This is a long book with 34 chapters, and it can can kind of be broken into four pieces, where the first three chapters, Moses is providing historical context of who these people are and where they've come from. In chapters 4 through 11, Moses is preaching and explaining the law that he's going to give them. He's expositing for them. In 12 through 26 there, he gives the actual laws, the commandments, the rules, that which Israel is to live by and how they are to worship God. And then the book finally concludes with Moses' passing and the leadership given over to Joshua. As we move through Deuteronomy, you'll notice that when we talk about God, who God is and what he's done, Deuteronomy is very optimistic. Yet like Leviticus and Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy is very pessimistic towards Israel, towards its works and its words. Um, And that's namely because they're unfaithful and it's heartbreaking. The main point of this whole book of Deuteronomy, as Mark uh, loves to put in your bulletin, Is, is basically a preparation for Israel to make a decision. This decision is something that Yahweh is forcing upon them at Moab. But this decision is not a one-time decision. But instead, this decision will be a day-by-day decision to continually and faithfully follow the God of their salvation. As Deuteronomy 30, 19-20 states, God himself speaking, I, Yahweh, call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I, Yahweh, have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you may live, loving Yahweh, your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So God is bringing his people to this place 
to make this decision. And, and we, we understand this call in light of the Old Testament, that God has moved this generation to this place and has foistered upon them this decision, this second generation. You people who I have called, who I have redeemed, will you now obey me? And how do we understand this in light of the New Testament? Well, the book of Romans is written over this very same concept. In it, Paul says that he writes the book of Romans to bring about the obedience of the faith. And the idea there is that those whom God has redeemed, those who love God, they live a life of faithfulness. Not perfection, but faithfulness. And that is exactly what God is calling Israel to do here in Deuteronomy. So what about the Old Testament? Some who claim to be Christians today have doubts about whether the Old Testament is necessary or important. Uh, Many will exclude much of the Old Testament from Scripture altogether. Others would argue that it does have inherent value because it is Scripture, but they don't know what to do with it. How do they relate to it? Its precepts and commands seem so strange. And so many just simply ignore it or, or refuse to study it. Because its concepts can can seem so ancient or out of place. Many of us may not have even read this book. If anyone ever starts with the book of Genesis and decides, I'm going to read through the whole Bible. By the time you get to the the end of Exodus and you start building the tabernacle and all the minutiae of the instructions of this many inches of this fabric and that fabric and this stuff. You you kind of get lost and you can put the book down and, and maybe you've never read through the whole book of Deuteronomy. But as we move through this text, I hope us, to help us to wrestle with these ideas, to better understand how to deal with these concerns and how to answer them. And I want to provide a couple of reasons even now of why we should study the Old Testament. First of all, in order to understand the New Testament, we must understand how God has moved throughout redemptive history to bring about his Christ, his Savior, his Messiah. By learning of the foundation that's presented in the Old Testament. The New Testament isn't born out of nothing. It's a continuation of God's work in human history to bring about his ends. Which can be summarized very simply. God is redeeming his people for his glory and their joy. So we don't arrive on the pages of the New Testament with Jesus coming out of thin air with no context. Instead, Jesus is within the people of Israel preaching the very words of the Old Testament. The second reason it's important to understand the the Old Testament is that the New Testament apostles themselves, they'll cite the Old Testament extensively as they apply the whole of Bible doctrines to life and worship, but in a context of the New Covenant or the New Testament. And so we can understand this in a a human way, thinking about uh, something that you all love, like mathematics. We all know that you learn with addition and subtraction. You don't learn with calculus and statistics, right? Mathematics is a thing that builds upon itself. You have to learn the basics in order to get to the next level to understand these things. Now, it's not to say that you need the Old Testament right here, right now, in order to understand the gospel. Don't hear me say that. But in order to understand the whole flow of redemptive history, it is something that builds upon itself, and we need to understand. Which brings me to another point. And this is something that causes great confusion. Salvation across all redemptive history 
has always been by the same means. To be counted or to be justified righteous before God throughout all history has been by grace through faith, based on God's words and according to God's sovereign decree or election. This is how salvation has always worked. Uh, you, can, you can study this in the book of Romans and Galatians. Paul bears out this idea of justification. Uh, and he points back to Abraham before the law that we will study is even given. Another thing that can cause great confusion is that the Bible as a whole is Christ-centric. Jesus is the focal point of the entire Bible, of all of redemptive history, of all of human history. And so we need to focus on what God is doing to bring about his ultimate plan. The Bible is not Israel-centric. It is Christ-centric. And God's plan, his ultimate plan, is to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. A final point of clarification or something that can cause confusion. Within the Old Testament people of Israel, the collective group, This ethnic group has been chosen, has been set apart by God for his purposes. And while they are all to bear the signs of the covenants, we must recognize that not all of national or ethnic Israel is the true Israel or is the Israel of faith. Not all of the people that are born descendants of Abraham are faithful and obedient to the Lord. And this this causes... Confusion. In the new covenant, what we see is that the signs of the covenant are supposed to be only for the people of faith. And so we see a distinction or something that's different in the new covenant. Whereas in the old covenant, the signs of the covenant were for the whole ethnicity, the whole nation. Anyway, these things will come up again and again. So I just wanted to, to kind of highlight them so you can be looking for them throughout, throughout the, uh, the entire time or, or if you read the book yourself. Uh, And if there's questions about that, uh, myself, Mark, or the elders would love to discuss that with you. But at this time, let us get right to the text. So if you would, let us stand and read Deuteronomy chapter 1 through verse, or chapter 2, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, according to all that Yahweh had given him in commandment to them. And he had off, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashratoth and Edri. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, Yahweh our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and in the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set... The land before you, go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time, I said to you, Moses, 
I am not able to bear you by myself. Yahweh, your God, has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May Yahweh, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise and understanding and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, as commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge them righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall, not, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time that all, thing, all the things that you should do. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which Yahweh our God is giving us. See, Yahweh our God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as Yahweh the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Ashol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a, it is a good land that Yahweh our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of, the, of Yahweh, your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because Yahweh hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Yahweh, your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how Yahweh, your God, carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe Yahweh, your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day, to show you by which way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, Moses, Yahweh was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit the land. And as for you, for your little ones, 
who you said would become prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, We have sinned against Yahweh. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as Yahweh our God has commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And Yahweh said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of Yahweh and presumptuously went into the hill country. Then the Amorites, who lived in the hill country, came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before Yahweh. But Yahweh did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days you remained there. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness, into the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Thank you, God, for your word. You may be seated. What a heartbreaking account. And let us take notice of it. In the opening five verses, we are told that Deuteronomy is the words that Moses recorded and spoke to the assembly of Israel as they were gathered opposite the land of promise. This is the second generation that that he speaks to here in these first five verses. They are once again beyond the river Jordan in the land Moab. This land will be the land of decision. And Moses isn't merely given a motivational speech. Instead, he is explaining, he's expositing the law which God has provided. It is here at Moab, this land of decision, where Israel must pause and consider again their God, who has disclosed his name, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping creator of heaven and earth. And so let us pause and consider a moment the heartbreaking reality that is presented in verses 2 and 3. It says that it is 11 days journey from Horeb or Mount Sinai by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke. So why is this so heartbreaking? Well, consider, back in Exodus 19, upon leaving uh, or... or, um, Instituting the Passover, three months later, Israel arrives at Mount Sinai. Israel would stay there approximately a year and leave in the second year of the second month on the 20th day toward the land of promise. Verse 2 tells us that it is 11 days from Mount Sinai to Kadesh. And yet verse 3 informs us that it is now the 40th year, the 11th month in the first day. So what was 11 days away from Israel going into the land of promise of obediently taking the gift that God had given them turned into a generation perishing in sin. Remember this land of promise is is something that is not contingent upon the law itself but something that was promised to Abraham. 
In Genesis 12 and 15, we see that God moves to begin redemptive history through the man Abraham. Or Abram. And he promises Abram a place and a people and God himself. But he does tell them, as he cuts the covenant, that they will be sojourners or aliens in a foreign land for 400 years, and then God will redeem them, and they will come out with great possessions. And so you've seen God move through the Exodus to bring about the redemption of his people in power and bring them to the precipice of the very promises that he's made to Abraham. He has made good on his promises. And yet, as Israel enters into covenant with Yahweh at Mount Sinai, And as Moses is receiving instructions from God, what is Israel doing? Israel is breaking the covenant by fashioning an idol at the base of the mountain where God is manifesting his very presence. In the presence of God, as God is speaking from the mountain, in this great and terrifying scene that's presented there in Exodus, Israel fashions an idol and bows down to worship it in light of all that they've just experienced coming out of Egypt. And God reveals further that he is merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And once again, renews this covenant that they had broken with them in Exodus 34. And yet, when Israel arrives at the land of promise, they break the covenant yet again. And this time God judges that entire nation. Here now... This second generation at Moab, Israel will once again be faced with a decision. Will they hear the word of Yahweh? Will they listen to his voice? Will they trust his word? As Israel is caused to pause and hear from the Lord Lord, at the opening of Deuteronomy, this becomes a major theme throughout the, the rest of the book. And will be this phrase, this idea will be repeated 38 times throughout the book. And this call is not merely to hear words. It's not merely to listen to what is being said. Instead, Israel is being called to decide based on the revelation of God. The hearing and listening of Deuteronomy is a call to faithful obedience to all that Yahweh is saying. Hearing and listening, then, in Deuteronomy are synonymous with obedience. The hanging question throughout the entire book is, will Israel trust in the word of God and act in faith? And remember, God is not merely looking for externality, but an obedience of the faith. And this problem, this decision, this day-by-day decision, not a one-time decision you make at Moab, but a life of decisions, day-by-day, will you live by faith, O Israel, gets repeated again at the end of Joshua. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord in the midst of another problem. Or Saul, when he decides to slaughter and, and, and make a sacrifice to the Lord. And God says, it is not your sacrifices that I want, but your obedience, your heart. In the New Testament, do we not hear the same call? In James chapter 2, James, speaking of faith that works, right? He says, you have faith and I have works. But what is a faith without works? What is a faith that doesn't obey God? Is that really a faith? And the conclusion of his rhetorical question is absolutely not. 
And so just like in the Old Testament, people could appropriate signs of the covenant. They could go through the rites of circumcision and they could obey the Sabbath. In the new covenant time, people can take the Lord's Supper and can be baptized. But these signs don't save. It is God who saves. And it is people, his people, that, that observe these signs in obedience to the covenant that they find themselves under. The next thing we want to see in this passage is God's faithful promise and Israel's multiplying sin. In verses 6 through 18, Moses begins recounting the history of Israel as God commanded the first generation to leave Mount Sinai and travel to the land of promise. In verse 6, God commanded the first generation of Israel to leave Sinai and go to the land of promise. And remember, this land has been promised not based on law, but this is a promise based on God's grace and it's a providential care toward Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants, through whom God will bless all the peoples of the earth. These promises were repeated to the patriarchs, to Isaac and to Jacob. And even in the midst of the idolatry and covenant-breaking act with the, of the golden calf in Exodus, God still maintains that he would make good on giving Israel the land of promise. Yet there, he relents and says, but I won't go with you. I will still make good on my promise, but I myself will not be with you and will not travel with you. And Moses intercedes, and the people recognize that without God, they are nothing. And so God, showing his great mercy and loving kindness, does decide to go with them. In verse 8, God tells us that Israel has set the land, or God, that God tells Israel that he has set the land before them. Like a table is set, like it's prepared, it's ready. Please have a seat, eat. He has given them the title deed of the land. Legally, it is their possession. All they have to do is go and enjoy it. God has provided his people with a place where they are to live according to his words. A life of worship toward their redeemer, their savior. But he is also to be their master. God's provision for them isn't a desert wilderness, but instead a land flowing with milk and honey. A land with cities and walls that Israel doesn't build. A land with vineyards and orchards that Israel doesn't plant. God is showing his fatherly affection towards his firstborn son by providing good gifts and providential care. We also see in verse 8 that God doesn't transport Israel from Sinai to, to the promised land with a snap of a finger. He doesn't just miraculously wave them there and then inhabit the land. Instead, he is calling Israel to play a part in fulfilling his promises to them. So that in the, this relationship, as God is fulfilling his promises, he is doing it through the means of Israel's faithful obedience. Do you hear that call in the New Testament? In 2 Corinthians, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation, right? In Romans 10, we hear the question, how will they, the lost, the Gentiles, the, the folks who don't know Christ in this world, how will they know God? How will they, how will they come to faith in him? And he says, by hearing the word preached. And who's going to preach the word? Are the clouds just going to declare God's words? No. You are going to go and proclaim the gospel message to the lost and dying world. And through the means of you proclaiming that message, God is going to save lost souls. And so just like in the Old Testament, Israel is going to appropriate the promises of God through obedience. So too in the New Testament, 
the kingdom of God, it grows, it expands by the means of our participation in the covenant, our participation of faithful obedience in what God has called us to do. But how can Israel know for certain that they will be able to go in and take possession of this land of promise? Well, in verses 10 and 11, we see that God has already kept his promises to Abraham with respect to making him a people as numerous as the dust of the earth or as the stars of the heaven. So God's word has proven reliable, and they are living proof. We also understand that Israel has played a part in God bringing about this very promise, their large population. And, in the, and, and this is even accomplished in spite of a time in Egypt where Pharaoh was co- conducting infanticide, as Pharaoh was uh, sending the children of, of, of Israel into the Nile for the alligators. Even in, in the first few verses of Deuteronomy, we see God is making good on his promises. He is faithful to the covenant, both to Abraham and to Israel, even when complete obedience on their part is lacking. And here we come to realize the grace of God and our utter dependence to, to this day on his gracious provision for guilty sinners. For God continues to fulfill his covenant promises, though we constantly lack a complete faithful obedience. And praise God that he is who he is in spite of who we are. However, as Israel increased in number, as their population grew, so did their sin. And their sin and murmurings and rebellion became an unbearable burden for Moses. And so we must ask, why can Moses not bear this burden? And here we begin to see the fragility of finite man. And we learn that humanity will need more than a mere man to bear our burdens. Ultimately, we will need the God-man to bear our strife. And praise God that in the person and work of Christ, that God himself stepped out of the heavenlies and took on human flesh. That he came and fulfilled all the requirements that God's character and nature require. And that through his finished work, his perfect life, and his obedient death on the cross, bearing on himself, the sins of his people, that through his, his life and death, through his perfect work, through his perfect sacrifice, that he can bear our burdens, that he can relieve our strife, that we can stand confident, justified, righteous before a holy and righteous judge and praise God for him. But here in Deuteronomy again, we see that when, when the Deuteronomist is talking about God, things are positive. Look what God has done. God has multiplied. God has fulfilled his promises. God has brought you here. God has fulfilled his promises. And yet, when it speaks of Israel, it's, it's always a casting a shadow of pessimism for everything Israel does. Since Israel's population is multiplying and their sin with it, Moses presents an idea to the people in order to get help. And Israel responds that this idea that Moses spoke seems good to Israel. Notice how the text has this interplay between what God has spoken and what God has not spoken and what Israel does seemingly on their own. And so here, Moses has an idea. And throughout the rest of chapter 1, we'll see this. Moses or the people's idea. And then we'll see how the Deuteronomist or Moses portrays how this decision works out. 
So since the people thought that Moses' idea was beneficial or pragmatic for them, Moses then decides to set forth military leaders and judges. These judges will operate separate or apart from the Levitical priesthood. So Moses has just delegated his authority over the entire nation, a people with as many as 600,000 military-age men, and he's delegated that authority to tens of thousands of judges. When you look at the, the hundreds, the tens, the thousands, this would be tens of thousands of, of judges or military leaders. And he's created a system by which the people themselves will decide their leaders. This is a call from, from Exodus 18 with Jethro's advice. And, and the call initially, and even here in our text, is that these should be wise men. Men of good character. However, we all know too well the sinfulness and depravity of the human heart and that people will not always make decisions based on the qualifications that Moses desires. This selection of judges concludes in a true fashion of Deuteronomy as shown in verse 18. Notice the command here is not from God, but from Moses. Now, instead of Moses being the definite leader of the people, Israel's tribes now have a representative system of governance based on a democratic voice of the people. And from now on, Moses will indeed not bear the full burden of Israel's decisions. But instead, all of Israel will be culpable for each and every decision going forward. And we see that in the language of Deuteronomy. Moses doesn't say, I, 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 throughout the book. He says, we and us, throughout the whole book. So now, as, as this system of representation, selected by Israel's people themselves, is put in place, now they are culpable for, for, for everything going forward. So what happens when a sinful people democratically selects their own representatives? While they have displayed a history from the Exodus period until they leave Mount Sinai of sin toward God and rebellion toward their mediator Moses, what can we expect? Utter disaster. And for us, this teaches that human reason and ingenuity are no substitute for the clear commands of God. God's word is that which brings life, while sin brings forth death. And so let us consider, where are we willingly trespassing God's clear commands? And let us repent and go before the throne of grace and seek forgiveness and repentance. Next, let us see Israel's persistent unbelief is made evident and judged. In verse 19 of chapter 1 through the first verse of chapter 2, we continue to have a, a history of this first generation that God redeemed from Egypt. In the context of this passage, consider the history of this first generation. They have stayed at Mount Sinai with God's presence for nearly a year. They are the generation who saw God move with a mighty hand and outstretched arm to redeem them from slavery in Egypt. They witnessed the judgments of God being directed towards the idols of Egypt. They bear witness of God's rescue of his firstborn son, while crushing the firstborn of the idols in Egypt, Pharaoh. They were brought out according to God's timing and promise to Abraham. And specifically, they were redeemed in order to be a people of God who would live lives of worship based on his decrees in a land of promise to the patriarchs and that they have left Egypt with great wealth just as God had promised. These people have survived the Passover judgment. They have witnessed God's presence manifested in power, fire, smoke, and earthquake at Mount Sinai. They have heard God speak and have collectively responded by providing the very materials needed 
and helping to build the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling place of Yahweh as he lives with his people. This tabernacle modeled after the heavenly realities itself. They were in awe when God's presence indwelt the tabernacle and resided, and even among this obstinate people, God, God showed himself or dwelt with his people. He tabernacled with them. These people have collectively been shown mercy after mercy. In a mere year, they have sinned again and again, and yet God is still leading them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Now they find themselves on the precipice of the land of promise at Kadesh Barnea, seemingly with the wind at their back, filling their sails. Notice how everything is set up for them. The land is theirs for the taking. It seems as if nothing can stop them. What else, what other sign would you need to be able to continue to follow in faithful obedience to the Lord? Again, notice the interplay between who is speaking. After Moses relays what God has said and commanded in verses 19 and 21, all of the people, notice the all there in verse 22. That's representation. All of the people respond by asking to send scouts to go into the land and bring another word or word again. We use a phrase, trust but verify. And this is how the, uh, the situation is presented here in Deuteronomy. Israel has every reason to trust God's word. And yet, they, they, they don't want to trust him just at his word. But they want their own people to go in and affirm to them that what God's saying is true. Moses agrees with the logic and rationale. As this idea seems good to him in verse 23. And so scouts are sent out into the land for 40 days. And the scouts come back in verse 25. And they verify the trustworthy word of God. It is a good land that Yahweh has given us. His word is true. Yet, in spite of all this, and in spite of all this generation has experienced, in spite of all the promises that God has already shown and faithfully kept, this generation rebels and questions God's motives and ultimately puts to, puts to judgment God's character in verses 26 and 27. Once again, they have decided to judge God. And once again, God did not seem favorable in their sight. The rationale in verse 27 speaks to the irrational nature of sin itself. They say, because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. They recognize even in their irrationality, that God was the one that redeemed them, that apart from him, they would still be in Egypt. And yet they ascribe to him hatred and hostility because of what he's done. In light of all the things I read up to you of what they've experienced in the span of a, a year, a, a year and four months. So we're not talking about, you know, 10 generations and, oh, you know, my greatest grandpa back there, he says this thing happened. This is the very people that God moved out of this place and has shown all these things to. This reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 16. The Pharisees and the scribes come to him and are looking for a sign. Prove to us you are who you are, or this is true. And what does he tell them? This evil and wicked generation will not get a sign. Why? Because you don't need signs. Signs and wonders and God moving with power like this, they don't change the human heart. 
They don't generate obedience. This is an argument I had over and over with my brother throughout the years as I would proclaim the gospel to him. And his response or retort to me was always, if God would just show me a sign. To which I would always say, open your Bible and read the words. (laughs) Another sign will not help. Not this generation. Not these people. And if God really hated them, wouldn't he have just left them in Egypt? Under the burden of slavery and harsh, harsh pharaohs? Or when he was coming to uh, launch judgment after judgment on the idols of Egypt, would he have shielded Israel from those judgments? Again, notice the irrationality, the foolishness, the stupidity of sin. It does not make sense. Moses responds by calling them to remember, to listen, to hear again the word of Yahweh. That which happened before your eyes in verse 30. So that appeal, once again, listen, hear. Don't don't just hear what I'm saying. Act in faithfulness because the God who is saying these things has proven over and over that he is faithful. Moses appeals to God's patient bearing of his son in Israel. In the wilderness. Has God not provided for you? Yet in spite of of Moses retelling God's words. They would not believe. Verse 32. They judged God. The God of the universe. And found him wanting. And yet again. They break the covenant that was renewed a second time. At Mount Sinai. Israel is subsequently judged by God. With God swearing that apart from Joshua and Caleb, none other, not even Moses himself, shall enter into the land of promise. Israel is commanded back to Egypt. Away from Eden. This place that God had prepared for them. God was moving to have his people in his place under the rule and authority of his words. And his people have rejected his place and his words. They've rejected him. And so just like Adam and Eve, if you reject my words to you, you don't get my blessings. And you're moved away. Out of the place that I had prepared for you. And in stunning continued disbelief and rebellion, Israel then determines that without Yahweh fighting for them, and in their own strength. Now, they're able to overpower the very soldiers and cities they judged God for and doubted Him for. So one of their excuses for, for disbelieving God was because the, the armies there were so great, the cities were so fortified, and there were giants there. And so they find God wanting, and they break the covenant with Him. And God judges them, and so they say, oh, no, 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 we can do this. We don't need you. We can do this on our own. We'll enter into this great land that you did show us was very good, but we'll do it without you. And Israel rejects God's clear command again, do not go up. And even with the warning of terrible defeat, they presumptuously go in to try to take possession of the land in their own might and are routed in defeat. God then forces Israel into capitulation at Kadesh Barnea. And this place, Kadesh, 
becomes another signpost along Israel's journey, a marker of unbelief, of unfaithfulness, and of willing, negligent disobedience. And again, this, this, this whole chapter is just wrought with heartbreaking tale. What does God have to do for his people, for his people to trust him at his word and to live in faithful obedience? This heartbreaking account should, should not pass too quickly from us. We too should feel this sting. Recall the words of Christ in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is saying the same exact thing that Yahweh, the God of Israel, says in the Old Testament. Believe me, hear me, listen to me, and act in accordance, in faith. It's not mere, oh yeah, I heard you, God. Now I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. No. True faith acts out in obedience to the God of the Bible. Let us remember the irrational nature of sin. And let us remember and recognize our constant need for a Savior. There were times along the way where Israel seemingly had it all going for them. At the Passover, they, they, they do exactly what they're commanded to do. And God passes judgment over them. It seems at times they act in faith. But then given the ultimate opportunity, they reject God and break the covenant with him over and over again. Our hearts in and of themselves are no different. We have the same sin nature that they did. And apart from God moving on our behalf to, to, to bring dead hearts to life, to change our very affections, to give us desires towards obedience, we would be just like Israel. And so praise God that in the new covenant, he doesn't just give us words to obey, but he gives us his own spirit to indwell us. He brings life, spiritual life, where there is death. And so let us hear these words from the perspective of the New Testament in Deuteronomy 30. As God calls heaven and earth to witness against you today, that Yahweh has set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your children may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the presence of the Lord that he is promising to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That to God will belong a people from all the peoples of the earth. That he will be their God and they will be his people. That he is making a new heavens and a new earth where God and, and earth, where heaven and earth once again will be reunited. Where Eden, so to speak, will be even better than we could imagine that it would be in Genesis 3. Let us see the beauty of the Savior that we have in, in Jesus Christ. And let us hold fast to the promises that he has made to us. And show to be faithful. God help us. Let's pray.
We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.